from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. This is about instilling the appreciation That's for exactly what's being right. done. One of the reasons of being in existence on this planet is to understand beauty, greatness, and creativity. And imagination is, to me, what every child needs more than anything. I'm Sarah Fenske. Music, writes Leonard Sladkin, is an art that relies on a middleman. In a museum, he writes, there is a direct connection between the artist and the person looking at the painting or sculpture. The performing arts, on the other hand, place the interpreters somewhere between the creator and the listener or viewer. In essence, Leonard Slatkin is saying, we do not listen directly to Beethoven. Instead, our experience of his Ninth Symphony is channeled through the orchestra playing and the conductor leading it. The conductor's awesome responsibility is something Leonard Slatkin knows well. He's the conductor laureate of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra and also holds similar positions with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra and the one in Leyen, France. And while Leonard Slatkin is partially retired, he's still deeply engaged in the business of classical music. It's the focus of his new book, Classical Crossroads, The Path Forward for Music in the 21st Century. And he joins us today to discuss it. Leonard Slatkin, welcome. Nice to see you again. So I love this image of your standing between me and Beethoven. Does the responsibility to do well by him weigh on you? Of course. We can't know what Beethoven really wanted as much as some people try to pretend they can. But the point is, we don't play music by candlelight anymore. We don't arrive at the concerts in a horse-drawn carriage. And our perceptions of any art form today are influenced by all the people we've seen and heard over all these years. So you don't listen to Beethoven without thinking about, say, Picasso. It does have a direct influence. Or, making it a little further, possibly the popular culture of our time, tells us something about Beethoven's interest in his own popular culture using folk music and the popular songs of the day. No, we are very much uh, of this idea that we have to help to make relevant, to use the operative word, this music for the time in which we live. And so that all makes so much sense when you're saying it, and yet I get the sense in your book that there are some different schools of thought on this, there are some different schools of conducting. There are. It's very different now in virtually every respect of the so-called classical music industry than it was when I started here more than 50 years ago. Everything about this profession has changed. The way we listen to music has changed. The way we play music has changed. The way we teach music has changed, or in many cases, the way we don't teach music. Mm. So... That was the impetus for writing this book. The first two were more memoir, autobiography, a little idea about what it was like to be a conductor, things like that. This one I thought, I need to write one that reflects all the years, especially when I was a music director, almost 45 years. I'm not really even semi-retired. All I did was step away from running orchestras. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I did was 
because things have changed so radically. Not that change isn't good, of course it is, but sometimes when you get to be older and more experienced, you make decisions about your own life. And I just wanted to focus on the music more than the administrative at this point. So the book allows me to express feelings that I really couldn't while I was running an orchestra. I was answerable to boards of directors, to the musicians themselves. And now I could actually express opinions that I had to keep mostly to myself while I was running orchestras. So I want to get into one of these opinions, and this was an opinion that set off quite a controversy within the world of classical music. Uh, You wrote a letter to the editor of the New York Times. Uh, They published it. They published a truncated version, as they do. They have very They have 700-word minimum. You just can't. You can't go over that. Um, But it later ran in its entirety on the website Slip Disc, and the headline was U.S. Orchestras Lack Boldness. Mm -hmm. Tell us the the gist of your argument there. Well, the article that I was responding to was speaking in particular about the lack of the assistant conductors, as we used to be, moving into top positions. I mean, I did. I Mm -hmm. was one of the very few, and really one of only two or maybe three that actually returned to the orchestra where they were the assistant. And that prompted for me reaction. It wasn't really about the assistant situation. It was about the fact that the 20 top budgeted orchestras, at least when I wrote the article, only had one American music director. And now today, none of them do. None. It's gotten even worse. Well, because Marin Alsop has stepped down from Baltimore and she was the last one. Interestingly, of course, the idea that the one orchestra that had an American was a woman. Yeah. So I was looking at how, did, where did we go wrong? In my lifetime, in my career, it was me, it was Michael Tilson Thomas, it was David Zinman, Jimmy Conlon, David Robertson, all these people looked more or less in my generation, maybe a little bit before, and we were all over the place. We had orchestras, we were conducting as guests all over, and now, no, it's not that way. What happened? What did we do wrong? Well, probably nothing. And each orchestra has to make a decision based on what they feel are the community's needs and the orchestra's needs musically. But I think we maybe are going down a path that's difficult because our orchestras are going to be facing, especially because of all the things that have happened in the last two years between Black Lives Matter, diversity impetus going on, the pandemic, all kinds of things have put us in a position where we can't, we haven't been able to audition people for our orchestras, creating more and more vacancies. Mm -hmm. People who used to have experience in orchestras playing are not staying through as long as they used to. They're retiring earlier, creating more vacancies. Orchestras are trying to figure out how to reach into their communities, but they're also facing tremendous pressure for building a new audience at the same time for what we call regular concerts. Maybe the subscription format is something that's going to be on the way out. Who knows? Uh, this, the next six to nine months are going to be really interesting. I think people are excited that the arts are returning. Mm-hmm. Live performances are starting to come back, although we're approaching it with trepidation, certainly. But what will happen six to nine months 
So I want to tell you a little bit of a story that may give a clue. And it it's actually something kind of that I'm upset about on my part. Okay. So during all this, movie theaters were closed, of course. Mm-hmm. I am an avid moviegoer. I grew up in Hollywood. When I'm on the road especially, I'll go to two, three movies a week. And I see everything. Independent, commercially successful, whatever. Now I couldn't. But I have a nice screen and sound system at home. So I watched everything that way. And quite often I created little festivals for myself at home. One month of French films. It was great. Now the movie theaters started to reopen. So what was the first film I went to? Boy, good question. What was the first film? Godzilla versus King Kong. <laughs> Why? Why? Because that's something I knew I couldn't experience mm. at home in the same way. You wanted that with surround the big sound screen and, and all the speakers yeah. blaring at me. But other films could be Nomadland, uh, the, the Father, all these wonderful films. I realized I was perfectly content staying at home where I could put it on pause if need be. I could have my own popcorn. Yeah. I was saving a lot of money doing this and still enjoying it. What did that say? If I wasn't so keen on necessarily returning to the theaters like I used to, what does that do for any art form which requires an audience to be in attendance? Yeah, this seems like very bad news for Hollywood. Well, not just Hollywood, but supposing in these next couple weeks when the St. Louis Symphony is up and running. I know Stefan Deneuve has his opening concerts this week. Then I'm coming back in two weeks. And we'll probably be back, I would assume, on a limited audience size. Probably still with masks. I don't know if the orchestra will be or not. Mm -hmm. And then gradually, with any luck, we'll get more mm, open, more Mm -hmm. free to do what we do. Reopen the bar. (laughs) will people want to come back and renew their 18 or 24-week subscriptions. I have a feeling people are going to say, you know, we sort of did okay without it. We got used to listening on the various media that are possible, watching performances from all over the world at home. Maybe we don't need to go as often as we did. So I think this is a real time to say, okay, how are we going to grab those audiences? How are we going to bring them into what we do? So live performance remains important. And one way I think that it happens, especially in a community like this, is, as with others, reaching out, moving away from Powell Hall, doing more things out in the community, reaching audiences where they live. I think that's going to be a key element for moving forward for orchestras of the size of the St. Louis Symphony. And is there some uh, some pushback on that? Maybe people who think uh, this, this makes things so complicated or we've always done things this way. Well, that's the problem. We've always done things this way. We can't anymore. Mm-hmm. We have to do things differently. Even here with this radio station, with the whole idea that radio still exists. You remember 10, 12 years ago, people said radio is dead. Well, Guess what? It's thriving more than ever. But why? Because the reach of radio via the internet, streaming services, all these things changed the way we perceived what we called radio. So concert going, going to museums, going to movies, going to plays, ballet, opera, 
we have to rethink, and I don't like re-anything, but perhaps create new ways, new paths to move ourselves forward. We can do it in a lot of different ways, but that will be for each individual city, each arts institution to figure out for themselves. But it's something that people can't afford not to think about. That's exactly right. And we have to also take into account the economic impact that all this has had. Many people have suffered to the point where they cannot afford to go out as they used to. Mm -hmm. And that will have a big impact as well. Yeah, I mean, hearing you talk about this, it it feels kind of pessimistic, frankly. Yeah, I I sometimes say I'm cautiously pessimistic. (laughs) And yet in your book, you, you have this sort of diary of the pandemic that you include in this. And you sort of end here with some cautious optimism. I actually, I want to play a piece of music here because you bring up, we're talking about music, we should hear some music. Mm -hmm. You bring up Copeland's Appalachian Spring as this note of cautious optimism that we need for what we're living through uh, today. You mentioned in particular the end of the piece. So let's listen to just a little bit of the coda from Appalachian Spring. is Copeland's Appalachian Spring, that note of cautious optimism that you were feeling when you ended this book. Has that optimism retreated a little bit as this pandemic does continue to drag on? No, it's still there because I think there is a lot of creative thought. It just needs to come to the surface, be made more visible to the public. The general public doesn't really know as much about its own arts institutions as I think they should. And that's the responsibility of the organization itself, getting its message out. We appeal to, say, five and a half, maybe six percent of a given population. That's nationwide. Mm -hmm. A little higher in Europe, a lot higher in the Asian countries, actually. We probably can expand that by a percent or two. But it's all going to come down to one thing, education. Hmm. What I think needs to happen as soon as possible, because we know the government is not going to give money, either federal, state, or local. It's not going to happen for the arts. When I first got to Detroit, I met with the uh, head of the school education board, and he bragged that 30% of Detroit students in public schools had music education, and I shot right back. I mean, 70% don't. Yeah, that's a terrible number. Um, so I think one of the things I talk about in the book is a different way to think about arts and incorporate them into the history curriculum. When Beethoven is writing his third symphony, dedicated to Napoleon, and Napoleon declares himself emperor of France. Beethoven furiously scratches out the inscription, and we can hear this in the opening music, the anger, or, as some conductors say, the nobility of that original dedication. So imagine, with every great historical event, we attach some music. We look at the art that was being created at the time, the sculptures, the poetry, the literature, just a little bit of 
indoctrination to the history teachers to say, include this when you're speaking about these times. If we can start to reach children mm -hmm. from almost the youngest possible age and expose them to what exists, not that they'll go into the arts, we're not looking for that, mm -hmm. but we're saying, this is a path for you. This is something you should make as part of your life, part of your soul. The society demands it, culture demands it, and it is what a thriving culture and society need. And so in our final minute here, I mean, when you're looking at the importance of arts education and you're looking at the survival of orchestras like the, the ones that you love, it seems like this comes down to less you need to help kids become a great uh, musician because <clears throat> we already have those. This is about instilling the appreciation That's for exactly what's being right. done. It's exactly right. It's about saying you have this opportunity to understand why you were here, that one of the reasons of being in existence on this planet is to understand beauty, greatness, and creativity. Our society has become so visual that we've forgotten, for instance, in music, that music is about listening. It's about creating the images in your head. And imagination is, to me, what every child needs more than anything. You make a great argument. I am ready to sign up for this foundation that you want to do to get these arts woven into the curriculum. Leonard Slatkin, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Good to see you again. This episode was produced by Emily Woodbury with audio engineering by Aaron Dorr and production assistance from Jane Mather Glass. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.